how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Proverbs Part 2. Well, we've said that Proverbs is uh, addressed largely to a young man by a father and a mother. It is advice being passed on through the generations, and since it's being addressed to a man, it's all about women, bad women and good women, or rather bad women and good women, because the mother's advice is to look for one who's a good one. The father's advice is to look out for many who are bad. He covers every bad woman from prostitutes to frustrated wives and uh, talks about how they can seduce with a smooth tongue and entice and persuade and the fascination of the forbidden relationship. Uh, But he says, ultimately, her guests end in the grave. You're throwing your life away, you'll finish with a loaf of bread. It's the quickest way to ruin your career and your character to get in with bad women. Very sensible advice. The mother talks about a good woman in chapter 31 and her list is a remarkable list. Years ago, we read the Bible right through in our church aloud. Takes 82 hours if you do it. We started Sunday night at nine, finished Thursday morning breakfast and we had 2,000 people came to listen. We sold half a ton of Bibles and everybody read for just 15 minutes and passed the Bible on to someone else. And the mayor of Guildford, a little man called Alderman Sparrow, heard about this and he said, could I read, be one of the readers? And we said, yes, but the list getting pretty full. Uh, And uh, we found a space for him, 3.30 on Tuesday afternoon. And he said, oh, I'll look forward to that. I'll bring my wife. And he said, do you mind if I wear my chain of office? And so we said, no, we hoped he'd wear something else. But anyway, he... (laughs) because actually I was invited by the mayor to an occasion where it said the mayor will only be wearing his chain, so please come in informal dress. (laughs) But anyway, he came and he arrived on Tuesday afternoon at 3.30 and he said, which bit of the Bible do I read? I said, I don't know. You just have to take the Bible at 3.30 and read on. And I said, where's your wife? He said, I'm terribly sorry. She, She hasn't come. She sends her apologies. We've had unexpected visitors who are going to turn up tonight. And she got up at dawn and she's cleaning the house and cooking food and she just couldn't come. And he got up and he read Proverbs 31 (laughs) about this marvellous wife who got up at dawn to cook and (laughs) do everything for the family. And then he read this, her husband is well known for he sits in the council chamber with the other civic officials. (laughs) And he staggered back to his seat quarter of an hour later. He said, Mr. Pawson, that was all about me. (laughs) And he was a nominal Roman Catholic who didn't know his Bible well. He said, could I buy a copy of that Bible? And I gave him one. He said, I'm going home to read it to my wife. He read all about himself in the Bible. Well, now these bad women and these, this good woman are not just persons. They are what we call personifications. They represent something else. They're not just individual persons. The bad women personify folly and the good woman personifies wisdom. And so folly and wisdom right through the book are called she. Folly is a woman, like a woman, and wisdom is like a woman. 
and she will wreck you and she will make you. So that they represent more than just good and bad women. And the whole book faces a young man with the choice. I suppose the acid test of a man is what kind of women attract him, or what kind of woman he marries. These choices make or break a man. And the choice of folly or wisdom will make or break a man. I must tell you about a preacher years ago in the city temple in London, a man called Parker, a famous preacher. In the middle of a marvellous sermon on a parable of Jesus, he pointed to the gallery and he said, you young men in the gallery, he said, where would you rather be? In the light with the wise virgins or in the dark with the foolish ones? <laughs> and he got a unanimous answer from the gallery <laughs> and it wasn't the one he was hoping for. But these are the choices. And uh, this is both a revelation of a man's character and also the formation of his character. Chapter 8, for example, and chapter 9, which we're going to sing in the form of a hymn shortly by Charles Wesley, uh, talks about this wonderful woman called Wisdom. And uh, the book says, Love her like a sweetheart. Make her a beloved member of your family. Go after her. Court her. And he's really talking about wisdom. And then, but stay away from this woman called folly. You'll finish up with a loaf of bread if you play around with her. Really, he's saying which woman will get you. And it's interesting that the whole Bible finishes with two women, a filthy prostitute and a pure bride. And the prostitute is called Babylon and the bride is called Jerusalem. It, so the whole Bible runs, this theme runs through which woman is going to be your companion and your partner, folly or wisdom, Babylon or Jerusalem. It's an intriguing metaphor or simile. The Bible constantly presents you with alternatives and says you must choose life or death, light or darkness, heaven or hell, folly or wisdom. And with only one life to live, you can either throw it away or you can use it. Now from all this we learn that both wisdom and folly are moral categories rather than mental. I'm afraid the world uses them more in a mental sense, as I've already said, and calls somebody a fool because their IQ isn't very high. But in the Bible, a man with a huge IQ can be very foolish. He can be mentally marvellous and morally silly. We tend to get these terribly confused. I heard of a country yokel down in Somerset years ago and he had a reputation that if you offered him a little sixpence or a big five-pound note, he always took the sixpence. A penny was it? A penny or a five-pound note, my wife says. He always took the penny. No, doesn't matter. And uh, thousands of tourists heard about this man. They all tried it out on him. And uh, poor foolish man always took the coin. Never the note. Fool, wasn't he? <laughs> no fear, he made a fortune at it. But we, we, we think of folly and wisdom as mental ability. But in fact, it's nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with whether you've got degrees after your name or pass exams. You're a fool if you're the cleverest man on earth and you throw your life away. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, says the psalmist. That's what real folly is. Unfortunately, we say that 
worldly wisdom is to know the world and to be able to find out what pays and what's profitable. That's worldly wisdom. What's profitable for you? What brings the most to you? Actually, wisdom is what's best for you. Not what's profitable, but what's better for your character. It's based not on knowledge of the world, but on knowledge of God. There's one verse in Proverbs, greatly misunderstood, where there is no vision, the people perish. Have you heard that? Oh, it's one of the most quoted. And it's always quoted when somebody's got a big scheme in mind, <laughs> either a new church building or a new program of outreach. We must have vision, because where there is no vision, the people perish. Listen, vision here has nothing to do with that kind of bright idea. Vision here is revelation from God when he speaks in visions. And it's really saying where God isn't revealing things to you, you will perish. The literal word in Hebrew is you will cast off restraint. You'll become a fool where God isn't directly speaking to you. And uh, once again, we need to get the real meaning of these. Now, looking again at this, we've got a remarkably symmetrical sandwich. Red, blue, green, green, blue. Do you see that kind of pattern? It's remarkably put together. You find many passages in Scripture have this pattern of... Uh, sort of in and out or up and down. There's a kind of symmetry about it all, beautifully put together. So you have this, the three slices of bread and then this double filling reversed here. The only two bits that don't fit are a little prologue at the beginning and this uh, Arabic uh, wisdom from Eger in chapter 30. But apart from that, it's a very symmetrical book and should be read right through. Solomon's Proverbs are here and collected by himself and here there's another lot of his proverbs that have been collected later by Hezekiah and his scribes. The green bits are the wisdom he took from elsewhere. There are 30 sayings here and 6 sayings here. This is what, what he picked up from around the world, talking to people from other countries. So it's a remarkable sort of pattern. When we look at the uh, more detailed Proverbs in these sections, particularly in his advice to youth and in the Proverbs he himself collected or spoke. Uh, look at the advice to youth, for example. It's full of do's and don'ts. Well, of course, that's what advice is. Do do this, don't do that. But just running through them, do obey your parents. Do seek and get wisdom. Do be kind to others. Do keep your heart, guard your heart. It means guard your affections. Watch who you give your affection to. And do be faithful to your partner, to your spouse. Jolly good advice to a young man, whether he takes it or not. It's his decision, but it's good advice. Don't, don't get into bad company. I suppose the biggest choice that affects our character is the choice of our friends. And it's our choice. I've heard people standing in the dock in a court say, Your Honour, I got into bad company, as if he somehow fell into it. But he chose that bad company. He was responsible for who he was a friend to. Don't commit adultery. That's tying up with be faithful to your spouse. Don't take out loans. Don't be lazy. You know, if there's one sin that is dealt with more than any other in the book of Proverbs, it's the sin of laziness. 
And yet you rarely hear that preached about, do you? We hear about a lot of other sins, but laziness is wasting your life, wasting God's time as well as yours. And don't befriend foolish women. That's a summary of that first section of advice to youth. When you come to the first collection of Solomon's Proverbs, he's drawing a contrast all the time between a godly and a wicked life, so many of the Proverbs here are but Proverbs. Don't be ungodly but be godly, that kind of antithesis. And then after that he has a collection of positive Proverbs about the godly life that are end Proverbs. Be this and this. And so he builds there a picture, once again facing this young man with a choice. Are you going to be a godly or a wicked young man? You decide. Every choice you make will build up a picture. The next collection of his Proverbs, which comes later in the book, chapters 25 to 29, almost entirely deal with relationships. And relationships are a vital part of life. And he advises the young man how to relate to kings and rulers, how to relate to his neighbours, how to relate to his enemies. If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For by so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Where did you read that? Romans 12. But it's right here. Relationship with yourself. There's quite a lot of teaching on how to be well related to yourself. You can tell as you go through life, some people are secure in themselves, they're well related, they know what they are and what they're not, they're not trying to be what they're not. It's a joy to meet such people, especially when you meet the other kind who are desperately trying to put a show on or a mask or trying to be what they're not. You don't relate easily to those people. Be yourself. How to relate to fools, how to relate to sluggards, slothful, lazy people, how to relate to gossips. There's an awful lot about gossip here. And then, having given that about relationships, he then has a section from 27 to 29 on living the good life, a high standard of living, not a high material standard of living, but a high moral standard of living. When we get to that last section at the end, it's very interesting that um, the advice is given to him by a woman and first of all she gives advice as to how to be a king. Remember we're dealing with a royal family behind this book. We're dealing with a prince, a son of Solomon. And so there's royal advice here on how to be king when he grows up. But then she says, but you're going to need the right kind of queen. And incidentally, for the feminists, let's just throw in that final picture of a woman fit to be a queen, whether of a home or of a nation, is a woman who is not only a good wife and a good mother and a good housekeeper, she's a very good businesswoman as well. She's a real estate agent on the side and pleases her husbands with the profits she brings in. So there's nothing about the kitchen sink mentality here. This is a woman who takes a full part in the whole of life but she puts her family before her business and that's a very important thing in that chapter. So it's a fascinating book one way and another. There are different kinds of fools and I just want to pick up some of the description. By the way, though I've uh, given you these neat headlines, they're all mixed up. They really are, just like uh, 
other books in the Bible, it doesn't seem very systematic, just like the laws of Moses. You go from one thing to another as you read each verse. Why is it all so mixed up? Well, it seems to me just like the advice of a woman saying farewell to her son who's, going, who's leaving home. Now, don't forget to change your underwear once a week and don't get into debt and be careful with your boss and she gives all kinds of advice totally unrelated to each other. Do you know what I mean? And uh, you just get everything all put in together. This is exactly how parents talk to children. They don't say, now I have three points this morning <laughs> and uh, here's my conclusion. That's how preachers talk, but parents talking to children say the first bit of advice that comes into their head and then go on to entirely different things. Some of you mothers are smiling, you know you do this. And so you get this kind of muddle. But let's just arrange a few things under topics. Let's look at the topic of fool. What is a fool like? Well, there are over 70 proverbs about what a fool is like. He, and I'm saying he, not she, notice, <laughs> he is ignorant, obstinate, arrogant, perverted, boring, aimless, inexperienced, irresponsible, gullible, careless, complacent, insolent, flippant, sullen, boorish, argumentative. That's a neat description. You ever seen a young man like that? <laughs> I think it's a little near home. <laughs> he wants everything on a plate. He doesn't think for himself. He prefers fantasy to fact, illusions to truth. At best he's a nuisance, at worst he's a menace. He's a sorrow to his parents, yet despises them as old-fashioned. Who says the Bible's out of date? <laughs> And there are two particular fools in this fool's gallery. One is the scoffer, the debunker, who is cynical and critical of everybody but himself. And the other is the sluggard, this lazy man who's hinged to his bed. That means when the alarm goes, he goes <coughs> And when the snooze alarm goes off, he goes <coughs> Vivid pictures, these. And a man who fits all that, those words is a fool. He's an idiot. He's throwing his life down the drain. Another subject that is a key subject is the tongue. This is so small and yet it's powerful stuff. In fact, I heard of a vicar who in the pulpit one Sunday said, I'm going to show you that part of my body that causes me most temptations. There was a hush came over the congregation. He went, James, writing the wisdom book that we call the letter of James, says the tongue is a small member. It's like a little rudder on a big ship, but can turn the whole thing round. It can curse people as well as bless them. And the sins of the tongue are mentioned all the way through Proverbs. There are seven abominations to the Lord, snobbery, lies, murder, conspiracy, mischief, perjury and gossip. Do you notice that the tongue figures in three or four of those? It is powerful, it cuts deep, it can be cruel and clumsy and careless, it can spread strife, discord and division. But not only is it powerful, but it's also weak. The tongue can't alter facts. 
or compel people to respond, and above all, words are no substitute for deeds. So what sort of words should be on our lips according to Proverbs? Four kinds of words. Honest words. Honesty. Honest words. Few words. Calm words. And appropriate words. It's no wonder that James says, if any sins not with his tongue, he's a perfect man. Because if we had never done any sins, Jesus said we shall be judged on the day of judgment for every careless word. That would be enough to damn most of us. And then there's another topic which is very important, and that's relationships. It's full of wisdom, husbands, wives, relationships. They're all dealt with there parents-children relationships. It does say parents are fools if they don't discipline and punish their children because Proverbs teaches that your children are naturally foolish and you need to knock that out of them. You see, children learn to say no before they learn to say yes. You never have to teach them to be cruel, only how to be kind. You never have to teach them how to tell lies, only how to tell the truth, right? Never had to teach them how to be rude, only how to be polite and courteous to others. And that is because by nature, the humanist says the child is basically good and in the right environment will turn out good. Therefore, punishment is irrelevant. That's how the humanist argues. Starts with the belief that children are born without sin, that they're born innocent, good and it's we who turn them into bad creatures by a bad environment. That is not the truth. The Bible takes the opposite view that children are born bad. That's why Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. This is the total difference between the Bible view of human nature which says we are basically evil and can do good things and the humanist view that says we are basically good and can do bad things. It depends which, where you start in how you bring up children. And the Bible is so blunt as to say, if you don't punish your children quickly when they do wrong, you don't love them. It means you don't want the best for them and you haven't really faced up to what love really is. It is not indulgence. It's not saying, here's some money, go and buy yourself some fish and chips and it doesn't matter what time you come home. That is not love. Love is a disciplined thing. There are relationships here with your next-door neighbours. I love some of these. It says, don't agree to a bad agreement. And it says there are times when you should be silent and don't call on your neighbours too often. There's lovely advice in here about how to deal with your next-door neighbours. And above all, it tells you how to be a good friend. Said so there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And oh, how many times I've heard preachers say that's about Jesus. It isn't. It's about being a good friend to someone. And it says four things about a good friend, four characteristics of good friends. And oh, it's a lovely list. Number one, constancy. A good friend is someone who'll always be your friend, who'll stand with you thick or thin. Candor. A good friend will be frank with you and tell you the truth. Counsel, a good friend will give you advice. And courtesy, a good friend will always treat you right. 
Isn't that lovely? And it's that kind of friend that will be closer to you than your relatives. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. Well, what do we Christians make of the book of Proverbs? Well, let's begin by asking, did it achieve its objective? You see, Israel was now in a position of peak peace and prosperity. They'd never had it so good. And Solomon realised that they could lose all this so easily. He didn't realise that he would cause that loss. But he did realise, he says in the book of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And he wrote this down to try and keep peace and prosperity in his nation, to keep them wise, because without wisdom the whole thing would go wrong. And we have to ask, did the Israelites take any notice of this book? And the answer is no. And uh, sin became a reproach to them. And that's how they lost everything. And people and nations who don't listen to such wisdom will lose what God has given them. Solomon didn't even live by his own wisdom. I'm reminded of the Scotsman who said to his minister in the church, he said, I've got an ambition to climb Mount Sinai and shout the Ten Commandments at the top of my voice. He said, I've always had that ambition. And the dear Scottish minister said, oh, he said, you'd be far better to bide at home and keep them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one thing to have texts up on your wall, but it's whether you've got them in your heart that really matters. And I'm afraid Israel didn't and they lost everything. Interesting how the New Testament builds on the book of Proverbs. Perhaps you've never noticed. See, John the Baptist, why did he come? It says he came to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. That's in Luke's Gospel. Did you ever notice that? John the Baptist came to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Jesus spoke with such wisdom that his hearers said, where did he get this wisdom from? So the word wisdom goes right through the New Testament, though you may never have noticed it, but it's there. And it was Jesus who said, the Queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here, saying, come to me for wisdom. As a child, it said Jesus was full of wisdom. This theme of wisdom goes all the way through. And you see the wisdom of God supremely in the cross because to human thinking that was utter folly. The cross is the foolishness of God to the world. They say, if you're going to save a world and put it right, what does dying on a cross do? It is utter foolishness. But you read 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says it was foolishness of the world but it was the wisdom of God. God knew what he was doing. You would never have put the saviour of the world in a carpenter's shop for 18 years and only allowed him to preach for three, would you? If you'd been arranging the programme for the saviour of the world, would you? But it was God's wisdom because his son had to learn through the things he suffered and he did learn. And so he came to be very wise. And through the wisdom of God in the cross, Paul says, Christ has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, 
our holiness and our redemption. Ultimately, the only wise people in this world are those who are concerned with righteousness, holiness and redemption. And the world couldn't care that much about those things. In the world's folly, it ignores the wisdom of God. Within the New Testament wisdom, there are many direct quotations from the book of Proverbs. I have mentioned already, Paul, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him to drink. By so doing, you heap coals of fire on his head. Peter frequently quotes Proverbs, one a notorious one, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Another of Peter's is fear the Lord and honour the King. That comes straight out of Proverbs. Or Hebrews 12, which we were talking about earlier this morning. That letter to the Hebrews picks up Proverbs again and again. Whom the Lord loves, he chastises. If the Lord does not chastise you, you're a bastard, you're not a true son. Because it's his love that disciplines you. That's straight out of Proverbs. James, of course, is the letter in the New Testament that is so like Proverbs. Apart from anything else, James jumps around from one subject to another, just like the book of Proverbs, and he puts tremendous emphasis on the tongue. And it's clear that he got a lot of his New Testament teaching straight from this book. So Proverbs is for us. Even though it is not in the New Testament, if Solomon could recognise wisdom in the Egyptians and the Arabs, then we should be able to recognise wisdom in the Jews. And frankly, whenever I talk to Jews, I find they have a unique kind of wisdom. It's almost in their bones, especially when you listen to an old rabbi. Did you ever see Fiddler on the Roof, Top on? Well, the wisdom that keeps coming out in that it's just so Jewish. What was the one we heard on television this week? Oh, <laughs> it was a marvellous one. I turned to my wife and said, isn't that typically Jewish? There's a kind of inherent common sense there, a shrewdness. And a friend of mine who has a Jewish name but is a Gentile was talking to the head of the Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem and the head of the Hadassah Hospital looked at him and said, I don't understand you. You've got a Jewish name but you've got Christian eyes. Boy, and that kind of shrewdness has kept them going through all the centuries when they've fled from one country to another. The wisdom of the Jews. They have a special group of people called wise men. It was from that group, the wise men, that they came following a star to Bethlehem. They weren't Gentiles, they were Jews. They were Jews left behind in Babylon after the exile. And they'd remembered the prophecy of Balaam that a star would arise out of Israel to be the king of the nations. And they'd been looking for that star according to that Old Testament prophecy. And when they saw it, they left Babylon. They should have left it centuries previously, but, or their forefathers should, but they came to Jesus. They were wise men. Have you seen that sticker in cars at Christmas, wise men seek Jesus? That's the truth, because Christ has become our wisdom the wisdom of God, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. And to get, a, to get those things will make you so wise and you won't throw your life away. I was given a prophecy uh, some years ago as the result of which I began my travelling ministry. And it was so direct and so uh, I couldn't avoid it. 
But it finished like this, I so want you to serve me that one day you will look into my face and say, Lord, we did it. We did it. What an ambition to get to the end of your life and say, Lord, we did it. Life wasn't thrown away. But you can't do everything with life. It depends on your choices. And Proverbs is about making the wise choice. Getting to the end of your life and saying, Lord, we did it. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.